Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Welcome to True Magic, the podcast where we are learning to do spiritual service with our physical bodies by learning about the spiritual meaning encoded into the physical forms of creation. This episode is brought to you by the good folks in our True Magic Signal group who sponsor our content with their subscriptions. And if you would like to join them, go to truemagic.nz and follow your nose. We recently looked at how Christ is conquering the times and the seasons through the physical forms of liturgical festivals like Christmas. And today, we're going to look specifically at three of those forms which have become key elements of Christmas in the West. Gift giving, Christmas trees, and nativity scenes. We're going to ask why we do these particular things, whether we should be doing them, and if so, how we might be doing them even better since they are a kind of liturgical practice, or to borrow a good phrase I recently heard from Richard Rowland, they are paraliturgical, and we know that paraliturgical or liturgical things will involve us in certain spiritual patterns, what patterns are we embodying? What are we involving ourselves in? Let's start with gift-giving, because I think it is the point that Satan has attacked Christmas hardest. We often feel that Christmas has become most corrupted exactly around this tradition. Many believers feel pretty icky about everything involving giving and receiving presents at Christmas, and understandably so. Various shopping chains are always the first ones to lead the charge into the Christmas season, often a month early with their decorations, and if you don't curate your media content pretty carefully, you're bombarded with ads for increasingly expensive gifts to buy for yourself, or for mum, or for dad, or for the kids, and there's a kind of commercial ratchet going on where every year you're expected to outdo yourself and buy more lavish and more numerous presents than the year before, and so is everyone else, until... Whatever peace and goodwill and joy the season had is entirely devoured by the stress of pushing yourself to the edge of bankruptcy so that no one will think that you lack generosity. I don't think anyone would deny that Christmas, like Thanksgiving, is a vehicle that commercial interests have hooked themselves up to, and that the very idea of gift-giving has been so tainted by the worship of mammon that the worship of Christ is now entirely eclipsed for most people. Worship him, you barely hear about him. Merry Christmas is racist or something. Happy holidays, man. But is the intrusion of commercial interests into Christmas a hijacking of Christmas? Or is it, as I suggested, merely a hooking up of a commercial trailer to what is a different kind of vehicle entirely? Should we be abandoning gift-giving? Is gift-giving, in fact, intrinsically commercial? Like, you can't buy presents without participating in the idolatry of mammon? Obviously not. Commercialization is like a cancer, it's a tumor on the body of Christmas, it is certainly not part of its healthy nature. There could be nothing more natural than giving gifts on Christmas, and even an eight-year-old with only rudimentary training in the ways of God can discern this, as our son showed us the other day by asking if we have gifts under the tree because God gives gifts to us. Yes, indeed, by giving gifts we are participating in the gift-giving nature of God. We are walking in God's ways after him. What does Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? If thou hadst known the gift of God, and who it is who is saying to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked him, and he would have given thee living water. And when Peter first preaches the gospel, he refers to the Holy Spirit as a gift. Repent and be baptized, each of you, on the name of Jesus Christ, unto remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Three times more in Acts, the Holy Spirit is spoken of this way, as a gift. 
And of course, the epistles also speak often of the gifts that God has poured out in Christ. We know, for instance, that we ourselves are declared righteous as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24. We read about the free gift in grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, and that the gift of God is life eternal in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that by grace ye are having been saved through faith, and this not of you, it is the gift of God. 1 Corinthians 1.7 tells us that we are not lacking in any gift. For as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 4.8, speaking of Christ, having gone on high, he led captive captivity and gave gifts unto men. Of course he did. For every good giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variation or shadow of turning. James 1.17 The Lord Jesus Christ is thus both the great gift and the great gift giver. God gave him to the world, and his birth was the unwrapping of that gift. This is reflected back to him as he in turn receives gifts at his birth from the men that he came to save, as recorded in Matthew's Gospel. And lo, the star that they did see in the east did go before them until, having come, it stood over where the child was, and having seen the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And having come to the house, they found the child with Mary his mother. And having fallen down, they prostrated unto him, and having opened their treasures, They presented to him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. Christmas is thus absolutely the time of gift-giving. When we give gifts to those we love, we participate not in the pattern of mammon, but in the pattern of Christ himself. It is fitting, too, that we wrap these gifts, for both scripture and nature speak to how apt it is that something special be concealed first, in order to build proper anticipation, and so that we would properly appreciate it when it is revealed. You notice that the mages opened their treasures in order to present their gifts. The gifts were carried, concealed, closed up, shut away. In the same way, think of how for nine months we must wait to see our new babies. They are carried in a hidden place. There is a reason that God knits them together in secret, hiding them from us for that time. Or think of how Paul describes the gift of God as the secret that hath been hid from the ages and from the generations but now was manifested to his saints, to whom God did will to make known what is the riches of the glory of the secret among the nations, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yes, there is something quite mysterious, something hard to explain, yet nonetheless obviously fitting and good about wrapping our gifts. Christ was, as it were, wrapped up in history until he was finally revealed in the Incarnation. And even the incarnation was a kind of wrapping of its own, where the glory of the sun was veiled by flesh, until it was unwrapped again in the resurrection, and then again at the ascension, a continual unwrapping of the glory of God from glory to glory. The manner in which God gives the gift of Christ is progressive. There are layers of wrapping paper, you might say. So perhaps, if we are thinking not just about why it is fitting that we observe Christmas with gifts, but also about how we might do it even more intentionally to participate in the pattern of God's own gift-giving, perhaps one way we could tweak or improve our gift-giving to be more symbolic of the gift of Christ would be to wrap presents first in fancy wrapping paper and then wrap them again in plainer paper. It's just a thought. I do not mean to suggest that we must do this, only that it would be fitting to do it. I don't want to lay down rules about things that are obviously not commands, but I do want to stimulate you to think about practical ways that we could apply the spiritual patterns that we discover in Scripture, and especially in the life and person of Jesus himself. That is what this podcast is all about. These are not just abstract ideas that we are expressing in our paraliturgy, including gift-giving, but historical events with spiritual significance. 
It is good to reflect on them and to consider ways to embody them more fully, especially ways that are instructive to our children. Just as giving gifts teaches our children about the great gift that God gave and the many gifts that flow out of the treasures that are found in him, so unwrapping those gifts to discover more wrapping paper would provoke our children to ask, why? Why do things that way? Such an approach is modelled for us in the Old Testament, which was written for our instruction, so that we could become skilled in liturgical celebration. Think of Exodus 12.26, where God tells the Israelites that he is instituting the Passover in the way that he is, so it would provoke their sons to ask what it means. And it shall come to pass when your sons say unto you, What is this service ye have? That ye shall say, A sacrifice of Passover it is to Yahweh, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt, in his smiting the Egyptians, and our houses he delivered. Joshua, who was one of those sons, takes this pattern to heart, using the same teaching method that God modeled in the Passover as he has the Israelites enter the promised land. Joshua 6, 5-7 has Joshua telling the Israelites, Pass over before the ark of Yahweh your God unto the midst of the Jordan, and lift up for you each one stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. So that this is a sign in your midst, when your sons ask hereafter, saying, what are these stones to you, that ye have said to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off at the presence of the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, in its passing over into the Jordan, were the waters of the Jordan cut off, and these stones have been for a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. In a similar way, one possible way to establish a lasting memorial to the way in which God progressively revealed the glory of the great gift of the Lord Jesus would be to use multiple layers of wrapping paper. Given the extra work involved here, my tongue-in-cheek suggestion is to have the women do the good wrapping on the inside and then have the men wrap the outer layer. You can do it, A.D. Robles. There are also other ways that we might adjust our practice of gift-giving to be more symbolic of what it represents, to participate more fully in the pattern of Christ. The first is to pay more careful attention to the gifts themselves. God gives good and perfect gifts. Not cheap gifts, not bad gifts, not hasty gifts, not nasty gifts. We should be thinking in the same way, thinking of quality over quantity. Unfortunately, it is my observation that many people, perhaps especially grandparents buying for their grandchildren, like to buy millions of really cheap, badly made rubbishy gifts, anything that seems kind of shiny and cool. And there are a lot of problems with this, including all kinds of interesting questions about clutter and minimalism and how that factors into piety. But the chief issue is simply that it does not reflect the gift giving of God himself. We all know that there are many things we have asked for that, in hindsight, we are very glad that God did not give to us. They would not have been the gifts that we thought they were. We should be modeling the same wisdom to our children. Children often have shiny object syndrome, and we often know that what they hope a particular gift will be, what they hope for from it, is a vain hope. It is good to withhold gifts from your children that you know will not be truly good, even though they think that it will be. Of course, we do not have an infinite abundance as God does. We cannot give whatever we want. Often we cannot give the gifts that we would like to. We are constrained by the limitations that God himself puts on us, and we ought not to feel guilty about that, unless we actually are being ungenerous, unless we are really hoarding our money on Christmas and being stingy with what we allocate to the gifts budget. C.R. Wiley recently wrote a post on Twitter that captures this paradox of gift giving quite well, saying, quote, Wives and kids... Here's the truth about dad and Christmas gifts. What he wants, you can't afford. Here's the other truth. He knows you can't afford it. He'll be happy with cigars or cookies. Preferably both. End quote. There are lots of good gifts that you can't necessarily buy for the people that you love. 
but that doesn't mean that you have to buy them rubbish. It means you have a limited pool of good things that you can get them. Cigars and cookies are good gifts, assuming, of course, that they are good cigars and good cookies. They're also good in that they reflect the natural goods of creation. Food, especially, is a good gift that God gives us. So it is great to participate in that by giving it to others. Clothes also, or things that we have made with our hands, or things of good workmanship. Also things that symbolize something of how we know the other person. Anything that will not end up in the trash, or more likely chucked into a closet somewhere forever because people feel guilty about throwing away gifts. I won't labor the point, as I trust this is a relatively easy thing to understand, and I don't want to insult your intelligence by implying that you aren't able to reflect on such simple concepts to figure out what good gifts look like in comparison to bad ones, so let me move on to suggest a second way of giving good gifts at Christmas, and that is what Christians have traditionally called feasting the poor. Christmas has long been a time of charitable works. Think of the carol Good King Wenceslas, which is based on what I believe is a true story about a real king, Wenceslas I, who went out looking for poor peasants to provide for on the feast of St. Stephen, which is the second day of Christmas, December 26th. Actually, he wasn't a king, he was Duke of Bohemia in the 10th century. So that's 1100 years ago. If you're not familiar with this carol, it is easy to find the lyrics online, and if you examine them, you'll see why Duke Wenceslas was regarded as a role model for the Christian king, the king who, following Christ, gives himself for his people. He was so admired for his piety, as a model of such a king, that after he died, he was actually crowned so that he could rightly be called a king. Now, we are obviously not kings, but in whatever situation you find yourself, you will probably have some resources that others don't. There are always less fortunate and needy people, even here in New Zealand, where we have a welfare state that saps our charitable energies by taking upon the government that which is rightly given to families and churches. Christmas time should have a special focus on this kind of charitable giving, of showing God's grace, his goodwill, his favor, and his charity to those in our communities who most need it. With gift giving still in mind, I'd like to turn to consider Christmas trees. I trust you see the connection, and hopefully in more than just a superficial way. Scripture itself describes a king providing for his people, as Wenceslas did, in terms of a great tree. Daniel 4, starting at verse 11. Great hath become the tree, yea, strong, and its height doth reach to the heavens, and its sight to the end of the whole land. Its leaves are fair, and its fruit great, and food for all is in it. Under it takes shade the beast of the field, and in its branches dwell the birds of the heavens, and of it are fed all flesh. This passage is describing Nebuchadnezzar, who at the time was not a Christian king, of course, though I do believe he became one. Nonetheless, what does Nebuchadnezzar as a tree have to do with Christmas? We're not celebrating him at Christmas, are we? No, indeed. Christmas is not about Nebuchadnezzar, the great tree. Nebuchadnezzar, the great tree, is about Christmas. The whole point of the passage is that the tree represents something that is not ultimately of Nebuchadnezzar, but of God. And of course, we know from elsewhere in Daniel that while Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was destroyed and passed away, the Lord Jesus is given a kingdom that is eternal. Daniel 7.14, to him is given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages do serve him. His dominion is a dominion eternal, that passeth not away, and his kingdom that which is not destroyed. If even Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is a great tree, how much more the kingdom of God? The Lord Jesus himself describes his kingdom in this way. The kingdom of the heavens is like unto a grain of mustard, which a man having taken did sow in his field, which indeed is less than all the seeds. But when it may be grown, is greatest of the plants, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the heaven do come and rest in its branches. 
and we ourselves are little trees bearing fruit. Lo, the sower went forth to sow, and in his sowing some indeed fell upon the good ground, and were giving fruit, some indeed a hundredfold, and some sixty, and some thirty. I trust you see why the tree became a symbol that Christians so readily adopted. Martin Luther reputedly popularized it, especially the idea of bringing trees into houses, and from Germany it spread to England through Prince Albert, husband of Queen Victoria, and then to the rest of the world. But these things catch on because they resonate with some deep intuition that Christians have. Obviously it is not just Christians, for Christmas trees remain as popular as ever, it is a natural intuition, but it was Christians who first sanctified that intuition, who saw the resonance between Christmas trees and the word of God, and approved the tradition. It was Christians who saw the connection between the tree and the kingdom, and between the tree and life, because it is always an evergreen tree, isn't it? And it is Christians who saw also the connection between the shape of certain trees, like the fir tree, and the shape of mountains. I hope you are familiar with the idea that both mountains and trees connect heaven and earth, that they represent the whole structure of the cosmos itself, so it should be no surprise at all that Christians chose trees that are mountain-shaped to put in their homes at Christmas nor that they decorated them with symbolic fruits. The Christmas tree, like Christ himself, gathers up all the trees of scripture, from the tree on which Jesus was crucified, the first fruits of creation, to the tree of life bearing twelve fruits in each month rendering its fruits, to the great tree of God's kingdom itself in which we grow like trees yielding fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And of course we are not just fruit bearers but also light givers. Ye are the light of the world. And they that turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars for ever and ever. We are set as lights in the tree in the cosmic mountain, with the great light, the morning star, Jesus Christ, at the top. So, of course, Christmas trees ought to be decorated with fruits and lights. But there is another thing that I think it is good to decorate your Christmas tree with, and that is a nativity scene. I'll speak to the propriety of having a nativity scene at all in just a moment, but let me put my conclusion out front to connect it to what we've just discussed. I believe it is good and fitting to have a nativity scene, and it is especially good and fitting to place it under your tree, right in the middle. It is an exercise in visual instruction to see the tree full of fruit and light growing out of the gift that God gave in a manger, surrounded by the gift-giving magi, and circled about with our own gifts in turn, as we participate in the same pattern that was established 202 decades ago now, and has been embodied by God's people ever since. But... The more Puritan-minded among us will now ask, how can you have a representation of the baby Jesus in a manger? How is that not a violation of the second commandment as we Protestants count the commandments? Exodus 20 verses 4 to 6. Thou shalt not make to thyself a carving, and any likeness which is in the heavens above, and which is in the earth beneath, and which is in the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not prostrate unto them, and not serve them. For I am Yahweh thy God, a zealous God, charging iniquity of fathers on sons, on the third generation and on the fourth, of those hating me, and doing covenant love to thousands of those loving me and keeping my commands. I have many reformed brothers following the Westminster Larger Catechism who would see any image of Jesus, whether a little sculpture of a baby in a nativity scene, or a drawing in a children's Bible, or a full statue on a crucifix, as a violation of this commandment, as idolatry. The Westminster Larger Catechism condemns, among the sins forbidden in the Second Commandment, the taking of any representation of God, of all or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly, in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. That's question 109. 
Now, this isn't an episode about the Second Commandment, so I don't want to go too far off topic, but I do think it is important to give at least a general answer to this objection, because if it is a sound objection, it is certainly very serious, and ought to be taken very seriously. And it would put nativity scenes entirely off limits to us. So let me turn aside briefly to examine the Second Commandment. What I'd like to do is work backwards a little bit. I'd like to establish what the commandment can't mean so that we can better understand what it does mean. And the simplest way to do this is to ask what God himself institutes in terms of liturgical images in the Old Testament, since obviously whatever he instructed the Israelites to do couldn't be in violation of the second commandment. One thing he does is instruct Moses to fashion a bronze serpent for the Hebrews to look to, so that they might be healed when bitten by snakes. That's Numbers 21. Now, what I want to especially point out here is how uncomfortable any reformed Christian would be if this happened in the modern day. Obviously, it shows us that the Second Commandment isn't a prohibition against making liturgical images, but my chief point is actually to call attention to the fact that our intuitions around liturgical images themselves are not good. We have great discomfort at things that God himself commands. Christians today would not be comfortable with the idea of a golden serpent that you had to look to to be healed. And it's not just because the times have changed. It's because our intuitions about what God is cool with are not good. Many Christians are similarly uncomfortable about any image used in churches. Yet in Exodus 25, God commands that carved images of cherubs, angelic throne guardians, be fashioned to adorn the Ark of the Covenant, and pictures of them be embroidered on the curtains of the tabernacle. Not only this, but in 1 Kings 6, 24-27, when the temple is built according to the pattern that God shows Solomon, it includes massive statues of cherubs to stand on each side of the ark, so big that their wings touch wall to wall. I think it is safe to say that the Christians today who struggle with stained glass church windows depicting angels or saints, well, it, it's hard to imagine them tolerating huge sculptures of angels set up as sentries on each side of the pulpit, isn't it? Don't misunderstand me as suggesting that we should have those. We would at least need to ask how the liturgical art of the Old Covenant should be adapted to the New Covenant, given that those old physical forms are fulfilled spiritually now. But that's not the issue. The issue is that if the Second Commandment really were the only thing informing our intuitions, we wouldn't have any problem with the idea of these kinds of liturgical images in the modern day because we know that they were absolutely instituted by God himself for use in liturgical contexts once upon a time. But that isn't the case. We are very uncomfortable about this stuff. And that tells us that our intuitions are not being formed just by God's law, but by something else as well, which I would say in the modern day is a certain pattern of thinking and practice, a certain culture which grew out of an overreaction to the errors of Rome. So what the second commandment is prohibiting is not, it cannot be, the creation of liturgical images. In fact, God requires liturgical art and images in Israel's worship in the temple itself for very similar reasons to why we have nativity scenes today, as a representation of and visual instruction about the realities with which our liturgical practices are concerned in the first place. If you pay careful attention to the second commandment, the complete prohibition is a polystrophy, a passage structured chiastically to emphasize its point through parallel statements. We could rephrase its structure as follows. Don't make sculptures to worship, and don't worship sculptures that you make. What is being forbidden is not the creation of liturgical images, but rather the worship of them. 
This explains why it was good for Moses to craft the bronze serpent in Numbers 21, and why it also had to be destroyed later in 2 Kings 18, after people started naming it and making offerings to it. Now, often people raised in the Christianized West are baffled that anyone would do this. We wonder why God would even need to give the second commandment. If liturgical images are okay, what the heck were ancient people thinking? Why would they worship a piece of carved bronze or wood or rock that they themselves had made? I imagine that if you're listening to this podcast, you may well have a better idea than most about the mindset behind this. You probably at least have a suspicion about what ancient people were thinking, which is that they knew the physical world images the spiritual. And because the essence of paganism is the denial of the creator-creature distinction, as we see in Romans 1, this naturally, inevitably leads to the collapse of all created distinctions, so that ultimately everything is one. It's all connected, man. That's the pagan mantra. And if everything is ultimately one, then a physical image of a god is ultimately, in some sense, the same thing as the actual spiritual being of that god, and he in turn is the same thing as the natural phenomenon which he embodies. Baal is the thunderstorm, and the bronze bullock is Baal. So if you want to worship Baal, if you want to bow down to Baal and show your obedience and reverence, if you want to serve Baal and honor him, and especially if you want to do so in a structured and safe way, because you are dealing with a god after all, then you create a statue of him, and whatever you do with a statue, you actually are doing with the god himself. That's the thinking. That's what the Hebrews were doing with the golden calf. They thought Yahweh could be worshipped in this way. They thought reality worked in this way. See what Aaron says when he makes the calf. These thy gods, O Israel, who brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron saw and built an altar before it. And Aaron called and said, A festival to Yahweh tomorrow. Exodus 32, 4-5. When we understand that this is the rationale behind the second commandment, not a general prohibition on liturgical images, then the question we need to ask ourselves becomes much clearer. Does the baby Jesus in the manger function in this kind of way? Is it an image to be worshipped, or an image that even might be worshipped? Now please understand, I don't mean this question humorously, as if the answer were obviously no, at least in the modern day. That's not obvious at all. I was raised Roman Catholic. In Roman Catholicism, there really are people who pray to statues of Jesus, and worse of course, to statues of Mary, and the statues really do function for them much like an idol did to ancient pagans. The statue really does somehow mediate Jesus or Mary in their minds. And the Eastern Orthodox are even worse, having a highly developed theology of icons which is very difficult to distinguish from standard pagan views of symbolic representation and sympathetic magic. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that I cannot overstate my reservations about trying to integrate Neoplatonism into Christianity, whether it's the energetic procession of Eastern Orthodoxy or the Thomistic metaphysics of the West. It's not that these systems aren't deeply insightful and helpful about the hierarchy of being, but when you push them to their logical conclusions, they just seem like they can't help but collapse into monism, this idea that everything is ultimately one, which pagan polytheism and pantheism collapse into as well. But, that being said, I think I'm safe in saying that reformed Protestants are not worshipping the baby Jesus. Not very likely. In fact, the very same mentality that leads them to worry about having a baby Jesus at all is the mentality which prevents them actually making an idol of it in the first place. To take an analogy, who do you think is going to be safer with a gun? The guy who thinks that guns are basically foolproof and never likely to kill anyone? Or the guy who thinks that guns are so dangerous that he knows all the rules of gun safety and also thinks he probably shouldn't even touch one? Ironically, it's exactly the guy who doesn't want the gun who is safest to have it. 
Now again, I'm not trying to give a comprehensive answer to the concerns of the Neo-Puritans who follow the Westminster on images of Christ. There are other reasons to be cautious about making images of Jesus, and other legitimate concerns that people have, but they are not so compelling that I think we need to cover them right now. That would take us too far afield. I'd simply say instead, if your conscience is still troubled by having a nativity scene, then don't have one. I think it's good to have one, unless you think any image of Christ might be idolatry, and then it's obviously bad to have one. But I don't believe that depicting the baby Jesus in a manger is idolatry, and I don't think it was ever regarded as such by Christians until we overreacted to people taking images of Christ too far and getting all weird about them. You can find nativity frescoes and carvings going back to the second century and probably before. So my conviction is that reformed Christians really ought to continue reforming and keep it between the ditches on this point so that we may participate in the ancient body of Christ by enjoying the same practice of nativity depictions that it has been enjoying for 2,000 years. There's one final point on nativity scenes that is worth considering, and that is their stylized, symbolically instructional nature. What I mean is, there are some people who don't have a problem with baby Jesus, but they do object to nativity scenes containing anything that isn't strictly shown in scripture. So they say, well, why are there three mages when scripture doesn't say there were three? And there are probably more. And why are they there with the shepherds when they arrive later? And why is there always an ox and an ass when scripture doesn't tell us that those particular animals are present? And so on. But these questions misunderstand the nature of liturgical images. The idea isn't to slavishly reproduce a scene from scripture. The idea is to visually condense the fundamental elements of the whole event into a single scene so that we may reflect on it and be instructed by it, and bring it, as it were, into our own present. The mages are there, just the three of them, because they are the wise Gentiles who brought three gifts unto the wisdom of God. The ass is there, the unclean animals, to represent them, just as the ox is there, the priestly animal, to represent the Jews, and because our forefathers understood the scriptures better than we do. Isaiah 1, 2-3 Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. When you understand the nature of liturgical images as condensing fundamentally related, though sometimes disparate ideas, into a single depiction, you can do away with such simple-minded questions as, why are the wise men there with the shepherds? And begin to appreciate things like nativity scenes in a deeper and more thoughtful way. You can also start to see significance in why nativity scenes often depict Jesus being born in a cave, but I'll leave you to figure that out in your own time. I hope you have found this episode helpful. After Christmas, we have a third episode lined up on doing Christmas left-handed, which will delve into the mysterious topic of what us folks down here in the Southern Hemisphere should do with all the wintry symbolism of Christmas. Until then, if you enjoy True Magic, it really does help us if you give us a good rating and review in your favorite podcast app. So if you could do that now, we'd be very grateful. And we're also very grateful to our paid members who make it possible to produce this content. If you would like to support True Magic, head on over to truemagic.nz. That's truemagic, or one word, .nz for New Zealand, and follow your nose. Paid members get access to our private True Magic Signal group, which is very high quality, access to our Talkie Nonsense podcast, which is a lucky dip of crazy bonus episodes curated by Smokey, from the mystery bag of cats that is our mutual brain, and of course, the warm glow of re-enchanting the world, just that little bit harder. Until next time, continue to serve the Lord in spirit by presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice to him, 
This has been True Magic.